Section nine of Not George Washington by P. G. Woodhouse. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Deborah Lynn. Not George Washington by P. G. Woodhouse. Part two, chapter six. New Year's Eve. James Orlebar Cloyster's narrative continued. The morning of New Year's Eve was a memorable one for me. My first novel was accepted. Not an ambitious volume. It was rather short, and the plot was not obtrusive. The sporting gentlemen who accepted it, however, Messrs. Prodder and Way, seemed pleased with it, though when I suggested a sum in cash in advance of royalties, they displayed a most embarrassing coyness, and also, as events turned out, good sense. I carried the good news to Julian, whom I found, as usual, asleep in his hammock. I had fallen into the habit of calling on him after my orb work. He was generally sleepy when I arrived at half-past eleven, and while we talked I used to make his breakfast act as a sort of early lunch for myself. He said that the people of the house had begun by trying to make the arrival of his breakfast coincide with the completion of his toilet, that this had proved so irksome that they had struck, and that finally it had been agreed on both sides that the meals should be put in his room at eleven o'clock whether he was dressed or not. He said that he often saw his breakfast come in, and would drowsily determine to consume it hot, but he had never had the energy to do so. Once, indeed, he had mistaken the time, and had confidently expected that the morning of a hot breakfast had come at last. He was dressed by nine, and had sat for two hours gloating over the prospect of steaming coffee and frizzling bacon. On that particular morning, however, there had been some domestic tragedy, the firing of a chimney or the illness of a cook, and at eleven o'clock not breakfast but an apology for its absence had been brought to him. This embittered Julian. He gave up the unequal contest, and he has frequently confessed to me that cold breakfast is an acquired yet not unpleasant taste. He woke up when I came in, and after hearing my news and congratulating me, began to open the letters that lay on the table at his side. One of the envelopes had Skeffington's trademark stamped upon it, and contained a bank-note and a sheet closely typewritten on both sides. "'Half a second, Jimmy,' said he, and began to read. I poured myself out a cup of cold coffee, and, avoiding the bacon and eggs, which lay embalmed in frozen grease, began to launch off bread and marmalade. "'I'll do it,' he burst out when he had finished. "'It's a sweat, a fearful sweat, but—' Skeffingtons have written, urging me to undertake a rather original advertising scheme— they're very pressing, and they've enclosed a tenor in advance. They want me to do them a tragedy in four acts. I sent them the scenario last week. I sketched out a skeleton plot in which the hero is addicted to a strictly moderate use of Skeffington's slow gin. His wife adopts every conceivable measure to wean him from this harmless, even praiseworthy indulgence. At the end of the second act, she thinks she has cured him. He has promised to gratify what he regards as merely a capricious whim on her part. "'I will give—yes, I will give it up, darling. "'George, George!' she falls on his neck. "'Over her shoulder he winks at the audience, "'who realize that there is more to come. "'Curtain. "'In Act Three, the husband is seen sitting alone in his study. "'His wife has gone to a party. "'The man searches in a cupboard for something to read. "'Instead of a novel, however, "'he lights on a bottle of Skeffington's slow gin. "'Instantly the old overwhelming craving returns. "'He hesitates.' What does it matter? She will never know. He gulps down glass after glass. He sinks into an intoxicated stupor. His wife enters. Curtain again. Act Four. The draft of nectar tasted in the former act after a period of enforced abstinence has produced a deadly reaction. 
the husband who previously improved his health, his temper, and his intellect by a strictly moderate use of Skeffington's slogan, has now become a ghastly dipsomaniac. His wife, realizing too late the awful effect of her idiotic antagonism to Skeffington's, experiences the keenest pangs of despair. She drinks laudanum, and the tragedy is complete. "'Fine,' I said, finishing the coffee. "'In a deferential postscript,' said Julian, "'Skeffington suggests an alternative ending, "'that the wife should drink not laudanum but slow gin, "'and grow, under its benign influence, "'resigned to the fate she has brought on her husband and herself. "'Resignation gives way to hope. "'She devotes her life to the care of the inebriate man, "'and by way of pathetic retribution "'she lives precisely long enough to nurse him back to sanity. "'Which finale do you prefer?' "'Yours,' I said. "'Thank you,' said Julian, considerably gratified. "'So do I. "'It's terser, more dramatic, and altogether a better advertisement. "'Skeffingtons make jolly good slow gin, but they can't arouse pity and terror. "'Yes, I'll do it, but first let me spend the tenor. "'I'm taking a holiday, too, today,' I said. "'How can we amuse ourselves?' "'Julian had opened the last of his letters. "'He held up two cards. "'Tickets for Covent Garden Ball tonight,' he said. "'Why not come? "'It's sure to be a good one.' "'I should like to,' I said. "'Thanks.' "'Julian dropped from his hammock and began to get his bath ready. "'We arranged to dine early at the Maison Suisse in Rupert Street, "'table d'hote, one franc plus twopence for Mademoiselle, "'and go on to the gallery of a first night. "'I was to dress for Covent Garden at Julian's after the theatre, "'because white waistcoats and the franc table d'hote didn't go well together. "'When I dined out, I usually went to the Maison Suisse.' I shall never have the chance of going again, even if, as a married man, I were allowed to do so, for it has been pulled down to make room for the Hicks Theatre in Shaftesbury Avenue. When I did not dine there, I attended a quaint survival of last century's coffee-houses in Glasshouse Street. Tall, pew-like boxes, wooden tables without tablecloths, panelled walls, an excellent menu of chops, steaks, fried eggs, sausages, and other British products. Once the resort of bucks and macaronis, Ford's Coffee House I found frequented by a strange assortment of individuals, some of whom resembled bookmakers' touts, others clerks of an inexplicably rustic type. Who these people really were, I never discovered. "'I generally have supper at Pepelo's,' said Julian, as we left the theatre, before a Covent Garden ball. Shall we go on there?' There are two entrances to Pepelo's restaurant, one leading to the ground floor, the other to the brasserie in the basement. I like to spend an hour or so there occasionally, smoking and watching the crowd. Every sixth visit, on an average, I would happen upon somebody interesting among the ordinary throng of medical students and third-rate clerks, watery-eyed old fellows who remembered Cremorne, a mahogany derelict who had spent his youth on the sea when liners were sailing ships, and the apprentices, terrorized by bullying mates and the rollers of the bay, lay howling in the scuppers and prayed to be thrown overboard. He told me of one voyage on which the Millet cook went mad, and escaping into the rat-lines shot down a dozen of the crew before he himself was sniped. The supper-tables are separated from the brasserie by a line of stucco arches, and as it was now a quarter to twelve the place was full. At a first glance it seemed that there were no empty supper-tables. Presently, however, we saw one, laid for four, at which only one man was sitting. "'Hello,' said Julian, "'there's Malim.' "'Let's go and see if we can push into his table. "'Well, Malim, how are you? Do you know Cloyster?' "'Mr. Malim had a lofty expression. "'I should have put him down as a scholarly recluse. "'His first words upset this view somewhat. 
"'Coming to Covent Garden?' he said genially. "'I am. So is Kit. She'll be down soon.' "'Good,' said Julian. "'May Jimmy and I have supper at your table?' "'Do,' said Malim. "'Plenty of room. We'd better order our food and not wait for her.' We took our places and looked round us. The hum of conversation was persistent. It rose above the clatter of the supper-tables and the sudden bursts of laughter. It was now five minutes to twelve. All at once those nearest the door sprang to their feet— a girl in scarlet and black had come in. "'Ah, there's Kit at last,' said Malim. "'They're cheering her,' said Julian. As he spoke, the tentative murmur of a cheer was caught up by everyone. Men leaped upon chairs and tables. "'Hullo, hullo, hullo,' said Kit, reaching us. "'Kitty, when they do that, it makes me feel shy.' She was laughing like a child. She leaned across the table, put her arms round Malim's neck, and kissed him. She glanced at us. Malim smiled quietly, but said nothing. She kissed Julian, and she kissed me. "'Now we're all friends,' she said, sitting down. "'Better know each other's names,' said Malim. "'Kit, this is Mr. Cloyster. Mr. Cloyster, may I introduce you to my wife?' End of section 9